you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Esther Rosenfield. I'm here with Soren Howe. We're talking about season two, uh, season three, episode two, I should say. I am not the fine man you take me for. Uh, another great title. Really a string of them this season, I guess. <laughs> uh, directed by Dan Atias, written by David Milch and Regina Carrado. Um, yeah, this is a... Yeah, this is the first episode he's directed this season. And last, uh, this series, I believe. Uh, kind of unusual. This is a show that likes to bring people back. Mm. Like, it's pretty... The only other person, I think, who's only directed one episode is Walter Hill, <laughs> who directed the pilot. And obviously, he's kind of like a bigger get than a lot of these other guys. Everyone else that I'm looking at... And, and Michael Amareda was a... But also, that's kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, he's a film director that mm. we got to do an episode. Uh, whereas uh, Dan Atias is really just like... I mean, he... You look at his Wikipedia page, he works a lot. Yeah. He has directed uh, several episodes of, like, every show you can think of. He's done everything from, like, Always Sunny in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. to Six Feet Under. Homeland, Ray Donovan, Sopranos. He he got his start on the original Miami Vice, which is cool. And, like, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Like, just everything. He he works all over. Real, like, real journeyman TV guy. Um, And, yeah, you know. I don't. I didn't think his work on this episode was anything particularly notable. Yeah, um, me neither. Which is a little unfortunate, but you know we won't have to. Don't have to deal with him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I almost got the impression, and this is a little mean, but I did almost get the impression that someone else dropped out, and they just kind of had to get someone to direct the episode. Mm. So they just got a guy who directs television, which is a shame because I mean it's a pretty important episode. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I mean, let's just get in. In a lot of ways, this feels like, in the way that season two started with a two-parter, this kind of feels like, it feels like one and two this season are themselves a two-parter, even though they're not billed that way. Mm. And it ends, you know, it ends with, like, a big moment to set up the rest of the season. Whereas episode one ended with a much quieter moment that set up this episode more. Right. This episode kind of... It feels like everything that in these two hours really comes to a head, and it feels more like a complete story. Um, I think it's interesting that it's not built that way. It's it seems very natural, and I wonder if it was maybe initially written that way because it just it, that that's how it that's how it really reads to me. I think that's true uh, in one hand, but on the other hand, I think we're we're inclined to try and find pairs when, and sometimes the show does that, but I it also is you know, because it tends to be one day after the other and um, pretty sequential in that way. Um, yeah. Things feel like they're all part of a, a sort of continuous story. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that this is, like last episode was setting up Hearst as a more overtly malevolent force and here obviously is couldn't be more, more explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like... Uh, with what happens in this episode that Hurst is an like that they've changed his character from last season or, or tried to, or decided to go in a different direction to like make him more overtly evil or were they, or like more directly like a, more of a direct operator. Um, um, or, or is that, or is, or is it, you think it's, in, I, I, it's not that it feels like incongruous, but I just wonder if you feel like there was a, cause I don't know it kind of reads to me that way that, I mean, it feels like this was always the subtext, right? The subtext. That he was this, exactly. That, 
Well, I mean, I, and I guess that's a fair point, right? Is if you're if you're bringing that out and making that explicit, that that is kind of a change mm. in his character. But it didn't really. I mean, it tracks to me. It tracks that like this is the guy who previously he does everything through his operatives. He doesn't really get his hands dirty. But I also kind of it is a little. It loses maybe a touch of the nuance of a of a villain like that, who just he sits up in his room and he he. Sp- sends people out to do his bidding mm. and he never like he never soils himself with the uh, the actual dirty work mm. but i kind of like it was shocking to me what happens at the end of this episode yeah and i think that i mean it's what the title reason... is you know i mean obviously the title is a quote like again like last week obviously that was a conversation between al and, and richardson but it was really sort of about hearst and this again is is about hearst even though it's the drunk guy at the beginning who says the line it's right. also about Psy, too. I think it relates, and we'll talk about sure. the scene, the scene with Psy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is the reason that scene works for me really is because I think if you're making the kind of commentary that you are with the Hearst character in terms of commentary on capitalism and corporatism and um, money, you know, mm. and rich people, I like the idea that you don't play him as so highfalutin, so you know, disconnected from the actual villainy. I like the idea that, no, he'll, like, just cut your fingers off because <laughs> he is just a bad person. Well, it just makes his, I guess uh, what I always come back to, I get, again, the point of this title in this episode is he's not that character, so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of silly yeah. to bring up the fact. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess I just find it, I'm just comparing it to when he was sort of at least feigned outrage over... Wolcott and Wolcott's behavior. And maybe he classifies well, that diff- his what he did differently. I don't know. Um, I think that, I mean, I think it certainly reflects on that in an interesting way. I like the idea that he, when he looks at, at Wolcott, who kills people who are have nothing to do with business, mm. who are com- completely unrelated, just, you know, I think he sees that and he's like, oh, that's, that's terrible. That's like, I think he's being very genuine in that scene to an extent, at least. I think he's very genuinely saying, that's horrible what you did. I can't believe you did that. And I can't believe that I was made to get you out of that without my knowledge. Mm. But I think then he looks at something like what he does to Al in this episode and says, this is business. This is how it goes. You know, we're two men. We're engaged in a very contentious business relationship Mm -hmm. and sometimes this is what you got to do and i think he sees al as someone who sets him he 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 sees people like al as allowing themselves uh you know not asking for it necessarily but they put themselves in a position where they know that that's something that can happen to them right willingly um and i think her sees that and says well you know this is this is the deal you want to go to war with me this is the deal yeah, and uh, Al also sets himself up here uh, in their in their final conversation as being the dynamic is very strange between them. But he sort of sets up his, you know, he, they they have this conversation about slavery, uh, which again is quite a thing to bring. <laughs> First of all, I love again. It's like um, uh, what's his face, the Starbucks guy. Right. Oh, Howard uh, Schultz. Howard Schultz, who said that he was like, I didn't have anything. I just started in, you know, in a, like, a, like a tenement in New York or whatever. And mm-hmm. like, that's true to some extent. I'm, I'm, he grew up poor, but he also grew up like 
white in the advent of like the New Deal and all the rest of it, and you know was and and as a man and all the rest, of, you know all the things that helped him yeah. like ascend to be the CEO of of Starbucks. And yeah, he had a few lucky investments or whatever. But it's this mindset, right? And it's the same here when 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 Hearst is like. You know, I didn't have anything when I started. I was the son of a merchant and blah, 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 or whatever, right? And it's like, yeah, but also he was a man, which, as we see in this town, has a very significant effect. Uh, and this is now versus when he was born, when it was probably even more pronounced. And he was white, <laughs> speaking of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so this, and so when Al sort of portrays himself as like the one under the whip versus the one, you know, holding the whip, which is sort of how he frames their, their power dynamic. Um, which again, ignoring the fact that they're both white, but I mean, Al grew up in a, um, you know, he went through this very like sort of traumatic childhood and it sounds like he was sold and all sorts of horrible things when he was a kid from what little we can gather of his, his youth. Um, and I think he really does see himself in opposition to Hearst, uh, even on a, like a moral plane, even more than the, the power struggle they're having. And that's a new dimension because last episode, as we said, Al wasn't, particularly he didn't really care about the unionization and all the rest of it he wasn't really pushed one way or the other he was more just against the this guy sort of making people do what he wanted which is again a little bit ironic for al but i think al approaches things a bit differently than hearst does yeah i mean there's this great kind of exchange at the end of the episode where well what happens early in the episode we should say is and by the way utterly bizarre hearst sends this um cryptic diagram yeah. to to the gem basically what al riddles out is he's showing where his men are going to be seated and there's going to be like an attack um and al sees this and when those men come and sit in those positions he and dan kill two of them and chase the other two off and it's just this very strange i mean from her perspective he is definitely, he is, he is testing the waters with Al still, I think. I think he is, especially after their exchange at the end of last episode, mm. he is still kind of unsure of how he wants to engage, of, of the extent to which Al is playing the same game he's playing. Because mm -hmm. Al, obviously, in the last episode, he was very much playing the, the uh, supplicant, the, oh, well, you know, I'm just a lowly whatever, and I'll, and I'll do whatever you say, but then still at the same time saying... You know, but I I am a th I am a threat to you. Don't underestimate me, and all that. So I think Hurst is kind of sending him this test, basically, of like, can you figure out what I'm gonna do? I'll send you a cryptic clue, right? Like he's Moriarty or something. It's it's <laughs> it's cra it's kind of crazy, but it also like it 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 seems that yeah, that seems like something Hurst would do in terms of his relationship with Al. Yeah, it, it, it is utterly bizarre. But also how he sees himself, right? He sees himself as, like, this, like, so far, you know, transcend, like, he, he's transcended society, and he, everyone's sort of, like, a mouse in a maze to him, you know, that kind of thing. That's how he sees himself. It's not necessarily how things play out, but it is often how things play out because he has so much money and influence. So he thinks he can sort of do these weird, like, mind game trick things um, that are almost cartoonish and like comic book like in their um you know and how they're they're thought out and executed and executed um and it and this is what happens when you have you know somebody who's like unimaginably wealthy they just you know they could do like these 
you know, they could be like, I, like there's that guy, right? There's somebody we heard, I, heard, I read about in the news recently who like wants to do uh, uh, like a battle royale Hunger Games thing on an island somewhere. And it's like it's it's like this childlike, but like because you have so much, you know, it's fine in the in the scope of like a like a like a petri dish. It's not, you know, with real humans, but because you're so wealthy and so have so much influence, you can do these things. So you can like do these things that seem like kids, but this is all around a, like a murder context, like a murderous context. So, you know. I mean, it looks like tic-tac-toe almost. I mean, that's what it looks like he's mm-hmm. doing. And then, yeah, but the consequences of him sending this diagram is Al was basically immediately going to kill these people and, and Hearst had to have known that. And these were, by the way, the guys who killed the Cornish uh, folks last episode. Um, and the way it's written in the HBO synopsis is that before they have a chance to make their case, um, Al kills them. So it's sort of suggesting that he he actually had a bit more of a choice. Like they weren't going to necessarily try and kill Al. They were just there to maybe say something. And then Hearst wanted to see what would happen. But again, just using his men, like, (laughs) well, this is very like, this is again, the Hearst kind of like the Batman villain thing of like, he sends them in there to die. Yeah. And this is his way of, this is his way of saying to Al, all right, are we like, are we even like you got to kill them? Are we even? And he says as much when they meet later in the episode. Right. And it's just so like, it is re- kind of it, it toes the line of, of absurdity in terms of how sinister it is, mm. but I think it works again because we're talking about a guy who is larger than life, and it's hard to conceive. Like it's hard on a show like this to when we have a lot of very down to earth characters up to this point to conceive of a guy like Hurst. But again, this is real life. Like Hurst actually existed. The all these people almost actually existed, mm. and they existed in the same place in the same time. So I think it it is important for the show to acknowledge that, even if it can feel a little strange to have these characters exist in the same place at the same time, because it doesn't feel like they should be from the same show. But I, I don't know. Like I think the show kind of has to do this. Well, I mean, I I always you know I always imagine like what if um, you know Abraham Lincoln or like some like extremely famous person were to be a part of the storyline in this you know in Deadwood. Um, obviously this is post-Civil War, so this is probably, I don't know what the exact, like, day of this is, so it could be that, you know, Lincoln's been shot at by this point or whatever, but, like, just somebody, like, Grant or somebody famous that we know from history, like, it feels weird to imagine them <laughs> in I mean, a world wild, like Wild Deadwood. Bill. That's well, yeah, but Wild Bill, Bill yeah, exactly. And they killed him in four episodes. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he sure did, and he really did die. Um, and he was killed by Jack McCall. Um, but it's hard to imagine, like, a Lincoln-type character we sort of see it quite reverentially in the discourse of like how or the, the dialogue of the Deadwood world. Um, so yeah, so when you have somebody like Hearst come in, uh, come uh, like come into the story and and be so different. But what I again, what I like about this this childlike aspect to this to him is something that was um, uh, illustrated as soon as we meet him last season. Right, he comes in and he's like, you know, I was just a boy. You know, they call me the boy the earth talks to. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't really, I didn't know what my, my, um, uh, my man here was doing. I was, you know, he plays this sort of like, oh, I just, I don't know. I just, I was lucky. I found all this gold and I just keep finding gold. That's just how it works. Um, you know, this kind of, you know what I mean? That kind of childlike innocence that he sort of plays, but like, it has never been made more clear 
<laughs> than this episode that that is an entire facade that's not just he's not self-deluded in that regard at least but these games he plays with people like the stupid diagram which he could have just said or really i mean there was any number of things he could have done to achieve this without making a diagram um and then his weird like power move of making a veranda out of a roof which by the way that can't possibly be like safe at all i no. have to imagine <laughs> that's not built to support people i mean yeah again this is a very, this is the power play right and we see him and even at the end of last season, we see him knocking down the wall in the hotel. Yeah. And this is yep. another version of that. It's just, you know, blowing all, hammering a hole in the wall of your room so that you can have a veranda just because you can. Because you bought this hotel just because you could. Exactly. And doing it, like, pretty, like, with by himself. Like, he doesn't tell the captain to do it. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and in the himself. middle of the day, everyone, so everyone can see him. Yep. Yep. And, and Al knows exactly what is what's about to happen too. Mm-hmm. He just walks out immediately and he's like, I know what, you know, I know what's going on. Also, um, by the way, we don't, we're not getting to the little moments yet, but uh, there's a great moment where um, Dan is reading the note and he clearly doesn't know how to say veranda. So he just says something like, oh, the handwriting's so messy. I, I don't know what the rest <laughs> of it says. Exactly. Yeah, Dan trying to interpret the notes in both regards. <laughs> when he's staring at the diagram. Uh, yeah, that was really funny. And when he's looking at each of them, just have they none of them have any idea what to make of it. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, so yeah, and then it culminates in this scene where, um, you know, I I had forgotten about this to be honest with you. I did not recall any of this. So um, there's one major scene left that I recall that is a great scene that is forthcoming in this season. Um, but otherwise, I'm <laughs> operating kind of in the dark at this point. But that this moment was not that moment and I don't know like I didn't I didn't remember it uh, but it is quite uh, intense when uh, when Hearst just comes out and he also you know he says it quite threateningly like he basically says yeah like I am the guy holding the whip basically um, and he takes out that hammer thing and then I guess cuts Al's fingers off yeah uh, we, we don't see because he's holding his hand inside his jacket mm. but I assume next mm. week we'll see exactly what happened but it, it looked sharp it looked like a blade yeah, it looked like that, or like the back of a hammer or something. Yeah, you know, like, the, like a claw, the yeah. Claw. But it seems yeah, like that's... the kind of thing that would cut a finger off. Yeah, certainly. Certainly, yeah, no, definitely could see, <laughs> definitely could see that. Um, and again, and, you know, uh, you know a Deadwood on HBO, to not show that, Yeah, I think is very unique. To not yeah, even it. the scene where he where he cuts uh, those two guys, he, it's not really that gory. I mean... I mean, you compare it to like, in a, you know... Again, I know we're doing this, but I think this is a good point of comparison. On Game of Thrones, when Jamie gets his hand cut off, and it's like mm. the shot just settles right there, and the hand is in the foreground, and you just see the knife come down and sever it, and it holds on the severed hand for like 10 seconds. <laughs> um, I don't even remember him losing his hand, but yeah. Yeah, like that, and then the episode like cuts to black. So I think to, it's not like they, it's interesting because they don't cut away from it, they just in the frame don't they just show keep it. the frame up yeah, yeah they yeah, just yeah. don't show it happen they just keep it out of the frame it's 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 interesting on a on a cable tv show to not to not revel in in gore that way and i guess yeah we'll see maybe we'll see next week when we see the aftermath how how they handle that but the, yeah but then the you have act, a chance to bandage it up right it's exactly yeah like the bandaged. act hiding the act itself is a is a mm. neat move and yet much like i mean this is fam- infamous right the the pulp fiction ear cutting scene yeah Right, everybody remembers the air cutting scene. Or the uh, actually, res- reservoir dogs. Oh, sorry, reservoir dogs. That's what it is. Yeah, reservoir dogs. Right, everyone remembers that scene, but it doesn't uh, actually have like you don't see it. 
yeah. if I remember correctly. It's like a, it's a cutaway, but everyone has this visceral memory of it, and it's because you don't actually have to show it to achieve the effect. Like, it's a great demonstration of that. Like, it's still horrible to watch it without having to see... Well, also, there's that... Squibs and all that. I mean, <laughs> what's off. the conversation we've been having? There's this element of mystery of, like, oh, God, what did he do to his hand? Mm-hmm. It's, which I think is maybe... I think it's 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 valuable to give the audience the chance to have that kind of horrified conversation. And I don't know about more or less valuable, but I like having that opportunity as opposed to just being shocked at what we see. True. Yeah, that's very true. Um I'll also say that we've seen Al in physical distress many times in this series so far, but uh, this is the first time someone's done something to him, I think. Like, it's always been his personal <laughs> medical issues. Um, yeah. I so mean, you could call is... what Doc Cock... It's not a violent act, what Doc Cochran does to him with mm. the metal rod. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I meant, like, out of violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Although I guess what uh, he and Seth beating each other up at the beginning of season. Two. Oh yeah, that's true. Actually, that's true. That's true. Yeah, maybe I'm. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I should. Yeah, that, that's that's a great point. I that yeah, that does undermine what I was thinking. Um, but I don't know. I guess there. The reason I didn't consider that as much is that, that that's more of a direct contest of what I felt like were more equals. Whereas this, sure, he yeah. felt very, he felt very, he seemed very vulnerable. I like felt bad for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seeing in like Al is not a character you generally feel bad for, uh, except for when you know his own body is torturing him or when he's, um, you know, dealing with this force and he doesn't have his like any of his people around. Um, this is the and first it's time. funny because Hurst, Hurst, you know, even makes commentary about how he knows he's good with a knife, yeah. <laughs> and he's like. You know, you're. We've got a gun on you because we know that you're good with a knife. Um, so yeah. Well, this is the first time really we've seen Al vulnerable at all. Like he's always in every situation, pretty much. He has the upper hand, or he has the opportunity to have the upper hand. Um, this is really the first time that I can remember that he has been at a disadvantage, and so mm-hmm. like so horrifically at a disadvantage. So what what is your anticipation for how he's supposed to deal with this? I mean, I. I <laughs> It seems kind of... I mean, Hearst doesn't really have much interest in the camp. As in, like, he doesn't... Sorry, what interest? He has lots of interest. He doesn't have, um, like, uh, an army the way Al has, like, a lot of people on his side in the camp. From Seth to his all his various henchmen and all the rest of it. Um, Hearst just seems to have this captain guy and, like, not much else. So... Well, Dan, I think, says... People power. Dan says at the beginning of this episode, like, why don't we just go kill him? Mm-hmm. And I don't remember actually what Al says in response, <laughs> but Al has a, re- a reason where I, that, that explains like, oh well, we can't just do that. Like this is, it's it doesn't work like that, um, which is you know reason like you know. Well, I guess what I don't under- I mean you know it's a little bit of like uh, history um, armor, right? We know that Hearst <laughs> that's true goes on to do other things. That's so, true. Um, but, you know, as for why they don't just... I actually saw a... And I didn't click it because I'm trying to stay, uh, even for this season, to try not to spoil things for myself. Um, even though I've seen it already. Um, somebody asked in, in the Deadwood subreddit, and the headline was, uh, why, did, why didn't they just kill Hearst? <laughs> and I was like, that's a good question. Um, well, I guess the I answer is, like, it, if it was me, and I don't... Again, I don't remember what Al says, but if it's me, I'm thinking, like... 
this is a guy like there's going to be ramifications for that. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? It's, it's it's not just one you know. Yeah, exactly. Got, it's not got just a family and it's all the rest of it, I'm sure. He has people. But who we know because he had yeah. you know, his dynasty continued on. So. Exactly, yeah. Like, yeah, it, it, that's really the answer is that he has a whole family, a whole legacy of people who can pursue you and will. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and send the Pinkertons and then you have a whole other problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, the Pinkertons have not shown up again since, uh, uh, what's her face? Miss Isringhausen. Isringhausen, yeah. <laughs> that long name. All right. Um, so, yeah, uh, the other, I would say that's... So the election speeches happen this episode. So just going really quickly through the major points. Election speeches happen. Uh, Alma's sick. And uh, Jane goes and talks to the kids. And then Sai's interactions with Joni and with uh, um, Andy Crane. So where do you want to start? Um, I mean, let's talk about the election speeches, I guess, because they kind of... It was amusing to me how, like, non-eventful they were. Yeah, after so much build-up. Especially after this scene, there's one of my favorite scenes in the episode, again, and it seems to always be an Evie Farnham scene. It's my favorite scene. <laughs> there's this great scene where he's rehearsing what he's going to say, and he's in the middle of it, he just goes, we should murder Bullock. We should all rise up and murder Bullock. <laughs> and why he thinks people will be on his side over anyone, I mean, it's just so bizarre. Like, oh, he, yeah. And- the, the maybe the funniest line of the episode is when he's giving his speech and he says, "I won't give a long speech today," and then everyone starts applauding. <laughs> um, oh man, yeah. But and then at the end, uh, the, I forget his name, but the last guy who's giving his the speech to be uh, sheriff, Harry Manning, right? Harry Manning, yeah. He just everyone's just walking away by that point. <laughs> he's talking, and he's the only one who is actually saying what he's going to do that we hear, which. Well, Saul does a little bit of that, right? He talks That's true. well only because somebody throws him the idea. Yeah, they're like, people should stop shitting in the creek, and he's like, yeah, they should <laughs> stop shitting in the creek. What's funny is Saul and Seth's speeches are pretty much the same, and the only thing they say is like, "Well, Seth says nothing. He's just like, I like the town. <laughs> I like, he says, I, built, I would like to continue living says, here. I built a house here, so I'm gonna maybe that's maybe at this time that's the only thing you really want to hear from an elected official is that they're definitely gonna stay." Especially in like yeah, a frontier I guess. town, and especially in a frontier town. Yeah, yeah. So like, that's what he's saying is like, well, look, I built a house here. You know, like I got my wife here. It's I'm not going anywhere. So you should vote for me. Yeah, maybe that's enough. I don't know. It's just hilarious how. And Saul says like, the same things. Like I just bought a house. Substance it is. Yeah. Um, especially since there are issues that people in the town care about. You know, like they've all seen what the sheriff's done or not done to deal with crimes and whatever. Um, so you would think they would be kind of invested in their plans for how to deal with such things, but they're all just kind of like, meh. <laughs> as, long as, as long as you're still here in a couple of months, then, uh, then sure, yeah, you could have the job. Yeah. Um, but we haven't seen the votes yet. Maybe it'll turn out Harry Manning wins. I don't know. <laughs> or E.B. Farnham. E. I mean, maybe they'll write it in that E.B. Farnham won you know, the election again just because in history he did uh, actually get elected after being appointed. But that's because people liked him, and that's just not how they bring <laughs> him into the show. Um, they could change history here and just make it like a fluke that he wins because people just nobody thought he would win, and then nobody bothers to vote, and then he wins by default or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know how they could really pull that off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so these speeches are intercut though with, of course, what we talked about before, which is Al and and Hart's conversation. Um. So yeah, and then. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Psy, because that scene 
I found extremely amusing. That's uh, yeah, it's I, I, I Powers Booth is just doing the most in this episode. Um, <laughs> really, really a delight. Uh, it's so funny. <laughs> I love and him like his whole thing of like pretending to be like infirmed in bed even more than he. I mean, it's not like he's not hurt, but like pretending to be infirmed in bed and then like. Annie Kramed comes in, and then he has him read a verse from the Bible. It's all so theatrical. Yeah, a verse that he has, like, bookmarked. Oh, yeah. Spe- <laughs> Just so he can, like, rise up, you know, and freak Andy Kramed he's out. He's talking about, like, I feel the spirit moving through yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. As he's pointing a gun at him. <laughs> And then Leon comes in completely, like, interrupts it, and he just works him into the whole routine. <laughs> uh, like, makes him get it. And then Leon just goes with it. <laughs> and then as soon as he, as soon as Andy Crane leaves, he's like, get up. What are you doing? <laughs> it was great. Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, no, we have a more overt conversation between, like, more, um, like, laying all the cards on the table between Cy and uh, Joni, though. Yeah, overt um, is the word. It's a, it's very much like laying the subtext of their relationship bare in a way that mm-hmm. I was not expecting the show to do. Um, there's this whole, this whole, they have this whole exchange where Cy is, like, um, telling her to come back to work for him because she's, like, wasting her talent and her, all of her training. Um, right. And then she responds by saying when i when you talk to me it's like i hear the devil or something right and that's right, right. that's a very like that's very blatant in a way that deadwood very rarely is and i don't know how i feel about it i don't know how did you feel about it i i mean i think it's good because it's something that's been built for 3 seasons and it's a, you know it would be i don't i don't think anything i've really ever heard in a deadwood episode of I've ever considered to be bad writing, so I don't think it would be bad writing really in any context. I think it would be lesser writing, or maybe a lesser show if that had been how they like we inter- we were introduced to them. Sure, sure. But I mean, it's a moment of clarity for her. Maybe she didn't have the words to articulate it three seasons ago, but now it's been a long period of time, and a lot has gone down since. You know, she's left. She's de- developed her own independence. She had her own place, partially because of Psy that ended up getting you know, sort of taken away from her. Um, she sort of regressed and now she sort of can see things much clearer. And I think that that's a, um, why she's able to make so, ob- you know, so overt, as you said, um, the, the, like the state of their relationship. And by stating it very clearly, I think maybe that'll help her move past it. Um, Cause as we said last episode, you know, this is, like where that relationship is going is that she's going to finally sort of sever ties with him, or at least that's our, that was, that was your prediction. And I agree. Yeah. I, I think that is definitely like, we see that continued in this, like, I don't, yeah, I'm not going to say it's bad writing because I think that even if, if this was a worse show, I think I would consider it better writing. <laughs> it is still like, there's a, I guess what I'm saying is there's a baseline on Deadwood where it's like, it never really dips below that. It's always mm-hmm. going to be good. Um, but it's just, it is curious to see a, sh- a show that doesn't typically traffic in very outward, in people genuinely speaking what they think, if unless you're like Seth, who always does, or certain well, yeah. characters. Or like well, yeah, but I mean, this episode has a lot of that. I mean, it also has Hearst and, and Al's, you know, finally saying what they mean, 
you know, in the context of this. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is the theme. Right? So, that is the theme of this episode, right? Is is those kind of facades? Right, as you said, side was that away. other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in that sense, I, I guess it's interesting. I'm just curious. I, I, I guess where they go from here. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, it's it doesn't come to a conclusion. It's just you know, as we, again, as we said, one size better. I think the plan is for Joni to move on. Um, seems to be the the direction they're going, and I hope she does because uh, it looks like you know there's a possibility of um, you know rekindling her her friendship with Jane and, and chilling there because we don't actually see them together at all this episode. No, but Jane does mention that very proudly that she slept inside. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, her weird, weird feud with Mose Manuel, who doesn't seem to have any issue with her. Mose is, Manuel is really like say? mellowed out this season. I gotta say. He was like the worst scumbag when we met him last last season, and he's very much like he's very. Well, remember like, he was doing his like weird yoga thing that he's been doing, right? So that's how we saw him at the end of last season. He, that's you know, true. He was like he had come back from the dead, basically, and he was like, "I'm a new man now. I'm just going to protect Joni Stubbs." <laughs> that was like what he wanted to do, and like almost oblivious to the outside world because you remember that was the shot where in the background, Walcott kills himself yeah and he's that's just right, doing his right. exercises and just ignoring everyone else uh and so he's and then joe and then like jane has this weird again this weird like feud with him but it's not it's very one-sided reciprocated yeah it's not reciprocated at all um but yeah and i actually didn't think they were going to follow through with this uh plot line but yeah jane gives her her speech to the kids or her her talk to the kids about what it was like working for Custer, who she didn't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she pulls it off. It's really sweet, actually. Yeah, the kids all like her. She's even, even uh, Martha is like very happy with what she says. I was really worried <laughs> that this was going to go in the direction where like she says something inappropriate or like right, right, mentions right. some anecdote that kids shouldn't hear about. Um, and then she gets flustered and then it's like, ah, oh, this is why I don't talk to kids. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but yeah, this is like a, it's, it's a positive development for this character. <laughs> Which we don't get a lot of. And yeah. she's also said she's off drinking again. That's true. She did say that. And she takes a bath. Yeah, she takes a bath. Really, everything is looking up for Jane. <laughs> Everything's coming up, Jane. Um, <laughs> so that's great. And then at the end, she actually says that she thinks Martha is very courageous. Which I th- was wondering what she was getting at there, but I thought it was a it was a sweet thing to I say. Guess that's probably, I guess that's a reference to her dealing with William's death, I guess. Could be. I, that's what yeah, I took definitely. Or like, and like staying I wasn't in sure town. If it was that right? or or dealing with the fact that I mean I don't know how much I don't recall. I mean, I, if you're thinking of Alma, I don't think she, I don't think Jane has any awareness of that that I remember. Maybe not, but she did interact in the beginning when Sophia was like via Sophia. She might, but yeah, you're right. It, it definitely is more likely about the, the uh, Martha's son dying, which. Um, yeah, it's sort of like a background factor in this. Uh, and actually, when I was talking about the events of this episode, there is also, um, uh, it, and it's sort of tied in, but Alma's sick, but also Seth and Martha have, a, a, like their dynamic is all affected by what's going on with Alma as well. So um, we can certainly talk well, about Well, they have that. this weird flirtatious moment early in the episode. It yeah. kind of feels like their whole dynamic is like every time they start to kind of draw together, Alma comes between them. Yep, yeah, um, that's definitely this, the theme. I mean, this moment... <laughs> I lost my mind just because <laughs> just because I'm on Twitter too much and this is the way people talk. So when Seth is like, I don't like this tea. It's too weak. <laughs> it's like, yeah. He's like talking like... <laughs> and she's like, I don't make weak tea. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> oh my god like he's like someone um dm'd him the drama and he was unimpressed like his tea his tea <laughs> is too weak <laughs> uh it's unfair and they I, they had no way of knowing what the lingo would be back in 2006 or whatever but, no um, they certainly wouldn't <laughs> And I'm sure this episode, this podcast is going to age very badly. Oh, definitely. No, no question. Know what that we're talking about in five years either. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, but it's nice because it seems like, oh, he's actually, it, it, first of all, the chemistry feels real. Yeah. Which is, I mean, just consider it for me anyway, um, how it seems so difficult. I am certainly no actor, but I imagine as an actor, it's not easy to make everything as cold and sexless as they did for a season plus. <laughs> and then to then, like, that was all covering up the fact that they could actually have chemistry if they were trying. Mm-hmm. Right? Because there's sometimes there's actors that like they just can't not have chemistry on, on screen. And there's people who they try and make have chemistry and they just can't because they just those two actors just don't have chemistry together or somebody's a bad actor or whatever. But in this case, apparently, this whole time, Anna Gunn and Timothy Oliphant could really... I mean, part of the reason is that, like, Timothy Oliphant, like, often plays more roles that are a bit, like, more sexualized. Not sexualized, but, you know, like, he's... Whereas, like, that's not really... I guess with Alma, right? But, like, it's not really his thing on the show. He's not, like, the hunk on the show. He's uh, just... I mean, he's not... Really? Di- Listen... <laughs> This is my personal opinion. I think he's very... I mean, listen, he's, you're right. You're correct that he is not depicted in, as, like, a sexy character. I find him extremely attractive. <laughs> that is maybe not the show's do. I mean, listen... When yeah, he's I was going to say, that's just because of him. When he's, like, sweaty and shirtless and he's building the uh, house in season one, mm. it's like, come on. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, um, no, I agree. He is not, like, depicted... No one really on this show is depicted They're all bundled as, like, up. Yeah, exactly. Is, is, is depicted all... as, like, a sexy character. In, mm. in that in that way, um, if they are if they are attractive, it is typically just I guess accidental. Right, exactly, exactly, and so, um, it, which is funny on a show that has so much you know it's like prostitution, all this other stuff going on, and like there's no to have a show that's as, as sexless as it feels, you know. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, uh, I just really I found this to be kind of shocking to me to just to see the these two characters have what felt like real heat real real chemistry and then of course it's all undermined because Alma falls really sick um and there's some context to this by the way that I maybe you remember this I absolutely do not but apparently Ellsworth's first wife died in childbirth yeah he mentions this last season I think yeah, I completely forgot Which is about why that, he, yeah, it gives, it does give like context more to, distressed by it. to why yeah, he yeah. seems so distressed this week. Um, yeah, I feel terrible for him that he uh, he thinks he might lose another wife to the same thing. Um, as the uh, as the anonymous Twitter person said to you, uh, poor Ellsworth, so. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not happy with Alma this week, I gotta say. <laughs> um, In what sense? The decision that she makes to not give Ellsworth, because she's writing her will, because she thinks she might die. Mm-hmm, and right, her right, decision right. to not give, um, make Ellsworth the executive of her claim, to, to, to continue having Seth have control over it if she dies. Right. I just, again, I felt terrible for Ellsworth. It's Oh, awful. He, he just, you know, he's in this situation where he's, he, 
he wants to do right. He just he does really care about her, and he's really worried that she's going to die. And he cares about Sophia. And he can't. He really cares about Sophia, and he's put in this terrible situation of like. And what he says is like, "Well, I have to go get him to make him agree to this." I think. Right. I think because he knows that Seth would never agree to that. Um, right. That Seth would say, "No, it should be. It should be your husband." <laughs> um, but yeah, I just. But he does kind of agree to it because of the justification Alma gives that she doesn't want um, Ellsworth to have to deal with Hurst. That's true. So yes, that there is that. There is that justification. Um, but I, I, I just on a personal level, I was very much, I, I felt for Ellsworth in that moment. I, I really oh, yeah. felt like, and again, yeah, like it does make sense on that level of like, you would want Seth to be the one dealing with Hurst in that scenario and not, you would I mean, I kind of see that. I can see that as like a good cover, although it is transparently that she just remains and probably will always be in love with Seth. Yeah. Like. I mean, yeah. Um, right. And that's sort of what, that's what she says at the wedding. Um, it's what she, or when she's talking to, uh, Brom Garrett, you know, his grave, um, that she basically says, you know, this is not a marriage of love. I'm not, I don't love this person and I'm probably never going to love this person. And obviously I'm still in love with Seth. It's more or less the, the text of what she's saying there. And, um, so, I mean, and I think it's obvious that how distraught Seth is that she's so ill that he's still in that mindset as well, even though he seems to be trying to move on. But she just he can't do that with with her mm-hmm. still around and still um, causing, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but just causing. You know, if she was well, it probably wouldn't be such a big deal. Um, and then, of course, the other factor, like underlying all this, is that the baby is Seth's baby. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yep. Um, and that's something that they haven't really contended with yet. But then again, Alma might just die. So. <laughs> I can't see that happening um if only because one as i mentioned in the past i know she's in the movie so i saw the trailer i know she's in the movie i know she doesn't die unless there's it scenes with her ghost i i think she's gonna make it jj has a twin uh, <laughs> that would be really funny <laughs> it's actually an alternate timeline um <laughs> after they had to you have to see Endgame first but then you can oh, see of course. the Deadwood yeah. movie and then it makes sense well the post credit scene of this episode really sets it up I think oh right um. yeah no definitely <laughs> um, so, so yeah and I think uh, that's pretty much it and yeah I, again as you said I didn't find much to comment on like in the filmmaking of this episode no not and the shots not the editing like nothing um, again not bad it was perfectly like comprehensible it just wasn't special at all well it's i mean i'm looking at like the list of directors we have coming up and it's we got greg feinberg ed bianchi dan minahan nice. um they're all directing this season so nice. and and a lot nice. like you said last week a lot more mark tinker and i think he yeah. acquitted himself pretty well last week yeah yeah no i'm excited to, to come back to him and see if any of his any of the things we observe you know you can't really see like the um the tropes or the, the whatever that the director's uh, trademarks without seeing a few more episodes yeah um, oh, I did want yeah, to mention no. um, one thing I noticed that I don't know if is going to come back, but there's this weird motif this season of Al, like, scrubbing things. Like, we see him last week, he's, like, vociferously scrubbing the floor, and mm-hmm. then this week when the men come in, he's, like, very intensely wiping down the bar. And then mm-hmm. they mention to the kid who works at the the gem, it's like, um, he's he's in for trouble if Al sees that he's scrubbing it and not waiting for Al, scrubbing the floor and not waiting for Al to do it himself. 
Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that'll come back, but it's just it's something I noticed well, last between week, these two episodes. Last week, we, we didn't make a... Um, we didn't comment on this, but when he scrubs the floor, when he gets frustrated with, with Jewel, when he's, uh, he's not really frustrated, but... He's not really frustrated with her. He's frustrated in general. Um, that was a, also a mirror of, I think, one of the first episodes of the show where he's scrubbing a bloodstain out of the floor. That's true, yeah. When 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 Jewel was supposed to be scrubbing it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost exactly the same um, a scenario. And in that case, it was a really good... I, I, mean, I think we commented on this, but I mean, it was a really good, like, Al will do it himself kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Al is much more of a, like, in-your-face and hands-on person. And that was supposed to be the contrast that we had sort of put up between him and Hearst, but now Hearst is doing stuff himself as well. That's true. I think um, we've talked about that, yeah. So, uh, you know, and what does that mean? Does that mean Hearst is actually more like Al than we think? Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Hmm. It's hard to say. Um, and also, by the way, I just, just throwing this out there, the captain, who basically has almost, he doesn't have any lines this episode. Captain and Turner, really, right? Yeah, Captain Turner. Um, he gives that weird smirk uh, across the thoroughfare to the uh, to the other to like Al's folks um, after they're like heading into the the, um, the hole in the wall mm-hmm. uh, and it's like just so cartoonishly evil <laughs> it's it just, is yeah it's like more emotion than we ever got out of Turner like usually he just walks up hands into envelopes or you know stands there as muscle but like here he was like you know really reveling in, in how much they had his how much like Hearst had Al over a barrel basically hmm. um and I think he sort of was getting a kick out of that, that power play. Uh, and yeah, and then we have this fun uh, uh, credits music, which is just, um, uh, it's all about a, a hole in the wall. Is it really? Uh, Again, I don't listen yeah. to these, but that's really funny. They're so good. Um, so yeah, uh, what do we, I think that's that's the episode. Yeah. So next week we got True Colors. We got Greg Feinberg back. Um, fantastic. I'm thinking of what Hearst is always talking about, whether he's he can find the color. Yes, I, I think that's true. Also, true colors, like showing your true true color. Oh, that's the obvious thing. Yeah. That's the obvious thing. Um, well, sorry for pointing out the obvious. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and uh, feel f- if, you, uh, if you're listening to this and you're just listening on the website, um, you're probably listening through a Spotify link if I've updated it appropriately. Um, so you can certainly subscribe there or iTunes or wherever else. Um, or check out our other podcast if you want to catch up on Game of Thrones. If you're like, what is Game of Thrones? I never watched it. I'd like to watch it now. You can go and listen uh, to our podcast as well as watch the show and catch up on that and go through our um, uh, journey with that show. Uh, and uh, Or catch up on old episodes of, uh, of Hoopleheads uh, and, uh, and and see how we've, uh, how we've gotten here and where we're going uh, heading into the film later this uh, after the end of the season alrighty okay 